Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. This fall, we are studying Genesis, the story of us, and I hope we'll get you thinking about an old story in a new way. gathering to begin this talk about Genesis, we made some several conclusions and we've learned some things about Genesis that we might not have known before. One, Genesis is poetry. It has to be. It's not a history book. It's not a science book, but it's poetry. It's poetry because that's the nature of the Hebrew language. Hebrew is a word pool language with 8,000 words as opposed to English, which boasts a million words and 170,000 commonly used words per person. Only 8,000 words, it's gotta be poetry. The first sentence of the Bible in Hebrew is literally beginning create God. That's got a lot of gaps in it, a lot of shades of meaning, a lot of ways that it can be interpreted. So that's the first thing that we learned together. The other thing that we learned in our first chapter of Genesis, the story of us, is that Genesis is a compilation. It's many stories jumbled into one, and it has to be. We learned last week that Genesis 1 and 2 are two separate accounts of creation. We tend to conflate them all into one. We tend to think that they're all one story. But if you look at it carefully, one says that the world was created in six days. One said the world was created in one day. One had men and women created at the same time. One had men and women created at different times. And so they're two different stories with two different messages, and it's a compilation of stories. That's the second thing that we learn. Even those stories have a very different backdrop. In the first story of creation, there's a lot of water. In the second story of creation, there's very little water. In the first story of creation, God separates the water from the land. In the second story of creation, mist rises from the earth, streams water the earth, and there's an oasis called Eden. And yet, the two stories, as different as they may be, they still do hang. If you've got a table Bible open, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And I'm going to ask you to highlight the word breathed. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. Genesis chapter 2 is a dusty story. The earth is a dusty place with not a lot of water. And God takes this dust and he forms a man and he names him Adam. Now remembering that this is poetry, the word Adam means dust. It literally means earth man. He's a, he's a man made of earth. An earth man is formed by God in his own hands and he breathes life into him, which simply means that we are more than skin and bones and hair and cells and blood. We have hopes and dreams. We're animated by God's own breath. If you've highlighted the word breathe for me, turn back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 because there is a wind uh, covering over the waters, over the deep. And if you'll highlight the word wind, the word wind in Genesis chapter 1 and the word breath in Genesis chapter 2 is the same word. The Hebrew word is ruach, which is God's own breath. And here's what I'm thinking. These two stories hang. They tell us something very, very important about our God and us. Ready? Okay, the God that made the cosmos, the God that set the planets in their courses, the God that made the galaxy above us and the grass in our yard and, and everything in between and anthills and whales and all the beauty and splendor of creation, that God knows my name. 
That God knows the dreams we had last night. The God who made the sunrise knows who I am. The God who made the moon and the stars and the sun and the sky also cares how I'm feeling and what I'm doing. This is what these two stories tell us. God made this beautiful world and God knows my name. But there's even more. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 that God dwelt with this creature that he made, Adam, this earth man. He dwelt with him, and they were happy together in the garden. But being happy with God was not enough. The man was lonely. God was lonely and made a man. The man was lonely, and God made a helper. In verse 22, of 21 and 22 of Genesis chapter 2, we're told that Adam was fallen into a deep sleep and from his own flesh came a woman and she would help him in the garden. And then they would have everything they needed. Oh, they had animals to name and they had food and they had water and they had a beautiful world and it had a relationship with God and with each other. And there was only one wrinkle in the whole story. There was a tree. They were forbidden to eat it. What in the world could go wrong? This is our lesson for today. Okay, so we're going to go now to Genesis chapter 3. If you want to just look along, it's still on page 2. For those of you who don't have a Bible, I've got it on the screen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Sometimes we know a story so well we hardly know it at all. And I would say that this story has been among the most misused in Scripture. It's an important story, but not in the way that many of us have, have grown up with or have used it. I think really the origin of the misuse goes back to the late Roman period, to the 4th and 5th centuries, and a late Roman Christian writer named Augustine of Hippo. We all probably know that by the 4th century after Jesus, that the Christian religion was pretty much everywhere in Rome. But I have to tell you that this poem that we're studying together was a bit of an embarrassment to them. I mean, the, the naked people and the magic tree and the talking snake. Uh, what do you do with something like that, right? And so Augustine of Hippo leaned into to Romans chapter 5, if you're taking notes. I, I won't pull it up and read it to you, but I'll tell you that in Romans chapter 5, St. Paul writes, another Roman, by the way, writes, In Adam all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And so Augustine of Hippo leaned into this story to say that, no, this is the reality. This is a literal story to the point that four in ten people in the United States believe that the story I just read to you is literally true. It comes from Augustine. What he did is he leaned in and he said, this story describes reality. This story says that there's something very wrong with us, originally wrong with us, and it has gone awry. And our bodies are bad, and women were put here to tempt us, and they are subordinate, right? And we are to fear God and damnation, and that this is the primeval state of humanity which is infected and poisoned and only rectified by the blessings of God through Jesus and the church. And for this reason, I will have parents, and they don't even know they're thinking about Augustine, young parents. Parents, parents with babies will come to me and let's say, when do we need to baptize the child? 
When do we need to baptize the child? Right? As if the child needs to be inoculated or something against sin. And I will say, well, St. Luke's, you need to baptize the child before they outgrow the gown. All right. So, but yes, Augustine to this day. Now, what I'd like to propose is another reading of this story that is also faithful. Uh, I'll, I'll propose three readings of this story that are faithful to Scripture and faithful to the origin and also faithful to the story of God and of us. It winds up with the rest of Scripture. So I'll begin. First of all, I believe that this story is an ethic. It's an ethic. It's, it's a picture of our life, everything we need, what God expects of us. Here we go. This is the story of three things, and our lives go awry if we lose one of them. It's the story of vocation, having something to do, permission, which is freedom to choose, and prohibition. That's what this is. This is the story of who we are with vocation, permission, prohibition. Leave one out, you go all wrong. If you have a vocation and permission, you have unbridled capitalism. You have a mean system that'll just eat people alive. If you have vocation and prohibition, you have the handmaid's tale. All right, got it? If you have permission and prohibition, you're just all up in your head all the time. You're not getting anything done. And it goes on and on and on. If you lose one, everything goes awry. And you'll see this again and again throughout Scripture. So it is an origin story, but it's not the origin of our evil. Rather, it's an ethic to show us how to live. I'll show you how it works in the Bible. All right, I have a cool picture here. And for those of you who may be wondering why I'm showing you a picture of DeSoto Caverns, it's not, and it's not Ruby Falls, uh, but rather it is a tunnel underneath uh, the oldest part of Jerusalem, which is called the City of David. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. There's a little funny story about Hezekiah's Tunnel, I'll tell you real quick. Uh, Rebecca, uh, our priest Rebecca, went with me uh, in April, and we went to Hezekiah's Tunnel, and we went to the entrance, and it said, Hezekiah's Tunnel, straight down. And Rebecca said, I don't like tunnels. And I said, Rebecca, it's not a tunnel. It's just a tunnel museum. See, I lied to her because I didn't know how to get her down to the other end. And, and it was very similar to my daughter, Betsy, when she was little. She's helping us out with a church video, and she's probably not in here now, which is good. When she was little, we were, we were at Walt Disney World, and I wanted to ride Space Mountain. And she said, is that a roller coaster? I said, no, it's a planetarium. Don't worry about it. And then, right, and we're still, we're still paying for therapy uh, over that. Same with Rebecca. I could hear the whole time going, I don't like tunnels. I don't like tunnels. I don't like tunnels. Okay, it's a tunnel beneath, isn't that fun? A tunnel beneath the oldest part of Jerusalem, and it dates from the year 701 BC. So here's the history behind Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, which was the world superpower at that time, uh, he had very recently, within the last two decades before this tunnel was built, had destroyed the kingdom of Israel to the north of the kingdom of Judah with its capital city in Jerusalem. Remember when they split in the Old Testament? You had 10 tribes in the north, that's Israel, and you had two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, with Jerusalem as their capital. And the 10 tribes of the north were wiped off the face of the earth in 720 BC, never to be found again. We don't know what happened. The Assyrians, the Assyrians were not the Babylonians. The Babylonian story that we told last week was a story of exile. The Babylonians would destroy your town and then take your leaders far away to live, to live in Babylon in their super city. The Syrians didn't do that. They just wiped you out. It was a destructive, it was a destructive force in their time. And King Hezekiah saw the trouble coming. And so he labored to have his engineers build a tunnel to trap water from a spring right outside the city wall at the top of the hill and 
channel it down beneath the city through the bedrock to the bottom of the hill at the pool of Siloam, which is a place where Jesus heals a man in the New Testament. But that was the intention. However, he didn't have a lot of time. So he had to start diggers on one end of the city and diggers on the other end of the city. And for this reason, when they originally found the tunnel in the late 19th century, people thought, this is the craziest tunnel I've ever seen. It goes everywhere. Why didn't they just dig in a straight line? The reason for this is Hezekiah's own genius. If you dig in a straight line, what happens if you miss? So what they did, they didn't have the technology. This is bedrock. They didn't have the technology to know where they're coming. They dug in a zigzag so that they would be sure to link. Why am I telling you the story of a tunnel and a water system underneath the oldest part of Jerusalem? The reason is this. If this tunnel doesn't get built, Sennacherib destroys the city. If this tunnel doesn't get built, we don't have a Bible. If this tunnel doesn't get built, we don't have a story. If this tunnel doesn't get built, the poem ends. If this tunnel doesn't get built, there's no John the Baptist. If this tunnel doesn't get built, there's no Jesus of Nazareth. Can I keep going? If this, this tunnel is absolutely key to us being here this morning, this tunnel that was finished beneath the city, and Hezekiah did it. Now, kings were proud. So proud of the fact that if you read the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you will read the story of some of the sorriest royals uh, in the history of, of, of monarchs. However, God also was smart enough to do, to do this for them. If they wanted a king, he gave them a prophet. That's what prophets are there for. That's, that's all they're there for. If you want a king, I'll give you a prophet. And so Hezekiah had a prophet, and his name was Micah. And this is the origin of a passage that you might know. It's one of the most famous in Scripture and it happened after Hezekiah finished his tunnel. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's where that comes from. It's spoken to Hezekiah after he finished the tunnel and saved the world. But here we go. Vocation, permission, prohibition. It's a life of balance. Three things right out of the book of Genesis. Vocation, permission, prohibition. You lose one, everything's skewed. He's trying to remind King Hezekiah to remember that he's not all that. He's trying to remind Hezekiah not to lose the very thing that gave him the impetus to save his people and to save his world and our world as well. Vocation, permission, prohibition. Okay, that's one example. Um, another faithful reading of Genesis is to say that Genesis is also reflective of our need of a savior. You are looking at some of the oldest walls of inhabited city on planet Earth. These are the walls of Jericho. Uh, Jericho claims to be the oldest continual inhabited city dating back some 10,000 years. It's the first city. You're looking at the walls of the first city. Now, you might be tempted to think that the walls of the first city is a little bit of an upgrade. Uh, for tens of thousands of years before that, some form of humanity wandered around following the weather, you know, chasing game, eating fruit and plants, this sort of thing. There were hunter-gatherers. But with the domestication of wheat came the city of Jericho. And you might be tempted to think that is a... a, a an improvement in our lot, if you will, moving from caveman or cave dwellers to living in a city, but maybe not. Because with the domestication of wheat, 
one had to build a wall to protect the grain that you picked. With the domestication of wheat, one had to have slaves to pick the harvest. With the domestication of wheat, one had to stay put in one place because you had to plant the wheat and wait on the wheat. You couldn't wait around and chase the rain. With the domestication of wheat, you became so dependent on rain that you started to pray to local gods for your rain. Hey, you remember the little golden calf they keep making in the Old Testament? It keeps getting them in trouble all the time, the little golden calves everywhere. That's a rain god. Yeah, right. With the domestication of wheat, without rain you die. With the domestication of wheat, someone has to be the king. With the domestication of wheat, someone has to have an army to protect you from the war. With the domestication of wheat comes a cycle of misery that has continued until this day. And it all began with the walls you're looking at right there, the walls of Jericho. Now, fast forward to the first century. We all know from the Gospels that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan after his baptism. Remember the story? Well, we might be tempted to think that wilderness means woods and water. It doesn't. The wilderness of Judea is a moonscape. It's hot, it's dry, there are rocks and scorpions and a bright sun and lots of ways to get hurt out there. Uh, it is just, I want you to imagine the most desolate place on planet Earth with the exception of one oasis, Jericho. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus went to be tempted of Satan before his ministry to us in the shadow of a wall that looks a lot to me like Genesis chapter 3? In other words, Genesis chapter 3 is not the origin of our evil. It's not the evil that's infected us all. Rather, it's a story of how we have skewed the ethic. It's the story of our bad choices. It's the story, as Paul said in Romans, with earth man we all die, in Christ we are alive. With earth man, earth man has an infinite capacity to mess up a good thing. Earth man just won't do right. <laughs> uh, earth man turns around and gets lost. Earth man, he becomes afraid. Earth man gets so confused. In Christ we have clarity. In Christ we have a new humanity. And so the temptations were three. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, man should not live by bread alone. Remember that one? The second one. Fall down before me and I'll give you every kingdom on earth. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God only and serve only him. Third temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle is the southeastern corner of the temple. It overlooks a valley. It's a high place where they used to blow a trumpet to call the faithful into prayers. He takes him up to the pinnacle. You can all imagine the wind blowing his hair and, and the devil says, throw yourself from this place and his angels will save you. He's quoting the Psalms. And Jesus says, do not put your Lord God to the test. Three temptations. Jesus shows us in the shadow of this wall a new way of being human. Trust in God for sustenance. Trust in God for safety. Trust in God for even certitude and what will happen after we die. I could even probably line up vocation, permission, and prohibition over against the temptations because Jesus gets it right. Here in the shadow of this wall where the misery all started, Jesus broke the cycle. He broke the cycle and he showed us a new way to live. The picture behind me is the pinnacle. There it is. Southeastern corner of Jerusalem. What I think is interesting about this is not only its location, but I'm standing in the place when I took this picture along a road where they dragged him the last night of his life. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and they drug him right under the pinnacle of the temple and I wonder if he looked up. 
I wonder if he looked up. I wonder if he looked up and saw it. I wonder if he looked up and remembered the temptation. I wonder if he looked up and remembered the night that the devil gave him an opportunity to do an end run around his destiny. I wonder if he looked up and remembered that he did not have to go the distance. I wonder if he looked up and wondered, would I have to do this cross because the nails will hurt. My friends will leave me. I will die. I wonder if he looked up and thought he didn't have to do this, but he did it for us anyway. And that's the cycle that's broken in Romans chapter 5. Not that we are infected with sin or lust or nakedness or anything like that. What we have in Genesis chapter 3 is an opportunity to live. And in Jesus, we have the answer. We will fail from time to time. We will get turned around. We will forget to include one of the others. We'll either forget prohibition or, or we'll forget permission or we'll forget vocation. We will get sideways, but God is always gracious with his children and he gives us grace. Genesis 3 verse 21. Genesis 3 21 simply says this, and the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and he clothed them. Do you remember when I read that last passage from Genesis and they make fig leaves for themselves? God made skins for them. God wants to make God clothes for us, which is better than what we often settle for, which is a story of grace. Oh, we make fig leaves because that's the best we can come up with. And God takes those from us and gives us something better. We may be broken, we may be lost, we may be failures, we may be losers, but God gives us something better. God made garments of skins for the man and the wife, and he clothed him. He clothed his own children, the earth man and Eve, his wife, which means life. My favorite verse of the Bible says the same thing. Mark chapter 16, verse 7, is my favorite verse of the Bible. It's Easter morning, the tomb is empty, and the women show up to anoint the body with spices, which they were not able to do on Friday when Jesus died. It was the custom of the day. The tomb is empty. There's a young man in there, maybe an angel. He's mysterious. He's dressed in white. And he tells the women, go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee just as he promised. Go, tell the disciples and Peter. Get that? And Peter, and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Do you remember what Peter did the night before he died? Denied his best friend three times. Cursed his name. Peter was a failure. But Peter would not be Judas in the story. Peter would become the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. Peter would become the hero that God made him to be. But he would only discover it in loss. He would only discover it in his own embarrassing failure. I had a friend point this out to me a long time ago. I never thought of it before. We would never know the story about Peter unless he told it on himself. But he had the courage to tell it on himself because in the empty tomb, these are the words of Jesus. Tell the disciples, and Peter. Tell the disciples and the failures. Tell the disciples and the losers. Tell the disciples and the deluded. Tell the disciples and the addicted. Tell the disciples and anyone who has failed to be the person God made him to be with vocation, permission, prohibition. Tell the disciples and anyone who's ever made a mistake that the Lord God will make clothes for you and bring you home. That's the message of the poem. Our mission is to be an open, inviting, and serving community in which Jesus Christ is the center of our life and the gospel is modeled and proclaimed in word and sacrament.